I want my politics to be boring and I want my religion to be stimulating. And what I see all too often in Jewish life is the exact reverse. From Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with journalist and author Yossi Klein-Alevi. Yossi is a leading intellectual voice. He is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He directs, together with the Imam Abdullah Antepli of Duke University, the Hartman Institute Muslim Leadership Initiative, which teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Judaism, Jewish identity, and Israel. Yossi's 2013 book, Like Dreamers, won the Jewish Book Council's award as the book of the year. And his most recent book, Letter to My Palestinian Neighbor, was a New York Times bestseller and an excellent book to understand the conflict with empathy and intelligence. He writes for leading op-ed pages in the US, including the Times and the Wall Street Journal, and is a former contributor to the New Republic. In this conversation, we talked about his journey from the political extremes to the center, his commitment to Jewish peoplehood, and of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. Our conversation was in March, when we were just beginning to quarantine and lockdown and did not yet know how big of a game changer this pandemic would be, not just for the economy and public health, but in almost every other realm of life as well. So thank you, Yossi, for being with us in the podcast. So tell us, for anybody that has been living in a bottle of yogurt in the last 20 years and doesn't know who Yossi Kleinelevi is, how would you describe yourself? Well, I'm a writer. I focus on two areas, and there is a subtle connection between the two. The first is looking for ways to strengthen Jewish peoplehood, and the second is outreach to non-Jewish communities with whom we tend to have difficulties, and especially the Muslim world. And where those two overlap, or let's say the sensibility that connects both of those commitments, is in a kind of curiosity about the other side. And I grew up in uh, Brooklyn of the 1960s and 70s, the son of a Holocaust survivor, very much on the right. That's my emotional makeup. I grew up in the Beitar Youth Movement, and then I graduated through Mayor Kahana's Jewish Defense League when I was a teenager. And so I know the right uh, instinctively. And yet, when I moved to Israel in the early 80s, I began to realize the complexity of our dilemmas. And felt the inadequacy of the right to hold Jewish peoplehood, to hold the tensions, the contradictions that Israel was navigating. And so I, I gradually moved to the center. And the center for me is that place that tries to hold our contradictions as a people. And so when I say curiosity, I've always been curious about the other. And it's an occupational hazard of having been a journalist for many years and to really try to step out of your own Dalad Amot, your own narrow confines, your own worldview, and in a way borrow strange eyes to look at reality in a different way. So with internally, I was curious about the left. I knew the right, but I wanted to know the left. 
And I ended up in the center because I realized that both the left and the right have insights into our dilemmas. Right. There's tons to unpack there and uh, in terms of our times. And you, you talked about curiosity. And I, I think when you look at the public discourse today in America, in Israel, in the Jewish community, there's a decline of curiosity, isn't it? You don't want to even hear what the other side is saying because, I mean, there's a paradox here. You, you think you're very safe and sure of your beliefs and therefore you don't want to have the curiosity to listen to others. But in fact, it's the other way around. You have weak beliefs, therefore you're very afraid of the difference, isn't it? I think that's, that's a really interesting insight. When I first moved to Israel, I was struck at the quality of the Israeli debate. Uh, and this was the early years of the first Lebanon war and then the first intifada. It was a very intense time. And then, of course, moving into the 90s, the Oslo years and the Rabin assassination. And what struck me about the left-right debate was that no one was interested in hearing the other side's argument. You weren't really debating. You were trying to vanquish your opponent. Right. And it seemed to me that the reason for that was that each side deeply knew that it was speaking from a place of Jewish truth. The left knew that the occupation is a violation of Jewish history. And the right knew that trusting Nasser Arafat and the PLO was in a different way a violation of Jewish history. And I would listen to them and say, you know, yeah, you're right, but the other side is also right. Right. When you when you say the holding the complexity, I think I think that's one of the things that are missing in our times. Like like people want to say, especially in the Jewish debate, if you look, you know, we want a Jewish people that is not complex. If you're on the left, you want a Jewish people that is homogeneous in liberal progressive values. If you're on the right, you want a Jewish people that is homogeneous in nationalist values. And I think that we, we lost that capacity of saying, hey, let's accept and hold and live with that complexity, which is the way we always lived. I think there are two Jewish camps. There is the one-dimensional Jew who can only hold what they know, and there are the multi-dimensional Jews who can tolerate complexity and even contradiction, and in some sense embrace it as the most accurate reflection of who we are as a people. And it's not a question of left and right. You have one-dimensionals in the right, right, and you have one-dimensionals in the left. And not to talk about politics now, but, you know, Ruby Rivlin, for example, president of uh, Israel, is a, is a man of the right, but he embraces complexity. Yes. And he would tell you, we are not unidimensional. And I happen to be here, but I understand that the Jewish people is more than just me, and that's good. And then you have the Bibi Netanyahu camp, who's more, I represent the Jewish people, and religious or, or political complexity is something that weakens us, in a way. There was a terrific moment uh, Three years ago, Yom HaShoah at the commemoration uh, at Yad Vashem, and Rivlin spoke and Netanyahu spoke. And Rivlin spoke about the need to transcend a victim mentality and not to place threat at the center of Jewish identity. And then he, he took on his mentor, Menachem Begin and challenged something that Begin had said in 1982 at the beginning of the Lebanon War when he uh, said that we've gone to war to prevent another Treblinka. And Rivlin said, you can't look at the Jewish reality, especially from a place of empowerment and sovereignty through the eyes of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Netanyahu gets up right after Rivlin speaks, 
and does exactly what Rivlin was warning against. And these two speeches are textbook studies for the two options of these two camps. Right, and, and it's always the unidimensional Judaism, both in the left and on the right, is mixed with victimhood, right? Like the ones on the left are going to say, oh, we're victims of whatever, the powerful injustice and what have you. The ones on the right are going to say, we're permanent victims and therefore we have to be strong and, and moral values don't apply to us because moral values never apply to the victim. Right, and it's so interesting how the Holocaust reinforces a one-dimensional right-wing approach and a one-dimensional left-wing approach. And you are either exempt from moral constraints as a Jew because of what happened to us, or you're exempt from political common sense and the need to protect your own people's uh, needs. Right. Uh, and, and, yeah. and there's something that's, that's, going, that's gone wrong in the way that we use the Holocaust. And I guess that our uh, adversaries also took on to that mentality too. Like if you think about the Palestinians, it's also a permanent competition of victimhood between us and Palestinians, right? And, and victimhood in their case precludes responsibility, right? If you're a victim, you have no agency. So therefore everything that happens to you is the fault of the occupation, the fault of you know, Israel and the people who abandoned you, but you, you have no responsibility for it. You know, I can understand ordinary Palestinians feeling helpless, feeling overwhelmed by victimhood. I can't understand Palestinian leaders and I can't absolve them of lapsing into the victim mode instead of showing up at the negotiating table and taking responsibility for their people. Right. When you think about Zionist leaders in 1945 and how Ben-Gurion and, and especially his camp completely rejected victim mode. And if any people right to self-pity, it would have been uh, the Jews in, in 1945. And uh, that, I think, is really part of the tragedy of the Palestinian people. Yeah, Zionism ideologically rejected victimhood. Like the seminal book of Zionism is actually before Herzl's auto-emancipation, right? Self-emancipation, right? From Pinsker. And it's kind of funny that now Zionism became on the right sort of a, a synonym with a victim mentality. You know, the yes. world wants to kill us, therefore we need to be strong, and, which is not what Zionism said at the very beginning. Until the 1990s, I would say, it's not what Zionism said. It's not what Ben-Gurion or Rabin said either. I think the beginning of the corruption can be traced already to the uh, 1970s in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War and the rise of the Gushamonim settlement movement, which really grew in strength after the Zionism racism resolution. And what Zionism racism did to many Israelis and diaspora Jews, and I remember experiencing this in Brooklyn in 1975, is the sense of the siege returning and the undoing of the Zionist promise of restoring the Jews to the international community. And uh, it's so interesting to look at the rise of Guchamonim in this context. Because Guchamonim was a movement, the settlement movement generally. It's a movement that feels comfortable with Israel under isolation, with Israel under siege. It conforms to a certain religious worldview that Am Levadad Yishko, where we're, we're right. meant to be in permanent isolation from the rest of the world. And uh, the Guchamonim breakthrough, great success in Israeli society, happened two weeks after the Zionism racism resolution. And I think that there's a direct relationship 
between the rise of the Israeli right and that sense in the 70s already of the siege. It took me personally years to overcome that sense of rage, of victimhood, and to free myself from that mentality. It was uh, actually being exposed to the Palestinian tragedy as a soldier during the First Intifada that forced me to realize that the identity of victim is so irrelevant, my reality, yeah. that it's ludicrous for me to continue to see myself that way. Now, I didn't go to the left-wing extreme of saying, well, the victims have now become the victimizers. And, uh, you know, I always uh, try to explain to American audiences that Israelis have a kind of split screen in our heads. One side is Israel versus the Palestinians, and we are David and their Goliath. The other side is Israel and the region, and we're much more vulnerable. Right. So it's more complicated. We're, I don't believe that we are victimizers, but we're also not victims anymore. Yeah, and victimizers is not really a question of objective reality. It's about how you feel about your own agency, your own capacity to alter reality. And we do have a lot of capacity to alter our own reality. And so do the Palestinians. I think you're absolutely correct. Whether the objective reality of having been a victim or not of a specific thing, every psychologist that works with trauma will tell you that it's not a question of whether you've been a victim, whether something was done to you or not, is what helps you in life. And being a victim doesn't, and recovering agency does. You mentioned something when you were talking about yourself. You said, you know, as a journalist, I have that natural curiosity, but much of journalism today is, is not <laughs> it's not on that wavelength of curiosity. It's more on, uh, you know, it's doctrinarian. It's ideological, it's mostly pamphlets. You know, Rabbi Sachs says they don't broadcast, they narrowcast. And they, mm. and they narrowcast <laughs> to, to sort of echo chambers of people that think like them, like in the U.S., like, you know, you have a parallel universe in Fox News, you have a parallel universe in right. MSNBC, and there's no curiosity between the two universes. Well, it's interesting uh, because I became a journalist, and this I realize only retroactively, at the cusp of this new phase of journalism. I entered journalism school in 1977, and most of my class were there because of Watergate. Everyone wanted to be a crusading journalist. And there was something very moving about that on the one hand. But the price that we paid is that journalism went from being a profession whose main commitment was to, to the truth, as difficult as it is to gauge the truth, to my generation, which brought in a new commitment, which was to justice. And as soon as journalism moves from truth to justice as its goal, you are opening the door to extreme partisanship. One man's justice is another woman's crime. And uh, think about uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. How many of my colleagues in journalism, I'm thinking of the foreign journalists that I've met over the years here in Jerusalem, came here with that post-Watergate crusading uh, sensibility. I'm going to defend the underdog. I'm going to expose injustice. And got the story completely wrong missed what the real story here was about, which was a mutual tragedy between two wounded peoples, two indigenous peoples, each clinging to an absolute narrative and to its maximalist claim to all of the land. And that's, that was the story here. And most journalists of my generation missed it because they were looking for justice. In it. Right. 
And now the feeling of being threatened, of being a victim, of being at war, you know, makes that curiosity secondary. You say, well, we're in existential war, so we don't have time for the nicety of being curious towards the other, right? We're, right. We don't need now analysts, we need prophets, we need pamphlets. We need- that's right, that's right, which takes us right back to uh, what you were saying earlier, Fox versus uh, MSNBC. Right. If you feel that you're under existential threat, if you feel that democracy is under existential threat, you're going to fight for it. And if you feel that whatever liberties you have, uh, if you a Fox viewer are under existential threat from some liberal conspiracy, you're going to try to defend yourself. So that there's a vicious circle between victimhood and closeness to the other, and that sense of we're locking some sort of cosmic war that is very problematic, isn't it? You know, and, and if you think about it, Andres, think about where we come from as a people, what our tradition values, what the Talmud is, which is a series of arguments. And the greatness of the Talmud is that it isn't just a document of legal decisions. It shows us how we reach the legal decisions. Our, our tradition cherishes respectful debate. That's what's essential to the search for truth is this respectful, intense debate. And the Talmud models that for us. It's not just a series of legal decisions. It shows us how these decisions were reached. It loves the argument as much as the conclusion, and it leaves in the dissenting opinion. And if there's any role for the Jewish community at such a time of pathological polarization, it should be to be modeling what respectful disagreement looks like. We seem to be living, and this is a conversation that you and I had in the past, we seem to be living in a time where the notion of peoplehood is a little bit under a lot of stress. Like on the one hand, the idea of peoplehood is suspect, right? Mostly on the left, you're going to say, well, you know, nationalism is a problem because it leads to all sorts of excesses. And that's historically true. I mean, nationalism brought to fascism and, and Nazism. And, and the right, on the other hand, will tell you, well, nationalism as we, or peoplehood as we understand it today in the democratic liberal paradigm, it's also a, a problem. We want to go back to a pre-modern way of peoplehood, this tribalism that it's being used now as a, as a positive, rather. So where does that leave us? So it, it seems to be that there are two different extremes. In one extreme, every sense of peoplehood or particular identity is suspect and is wrong, and we have to be universalists. On the other hand, all the universalism and the openness of the modern time is wrong, and we have to be tribalist and xenophobic because that's the only thing that gives us entity as a people. Now, the Jewish people was always between these two extremes, right? Like it was also particular and universal. It was always yes. navigating a middle ground. And I think that today we kind of lost that middle ground. Well, you know, it's interesting because we do have precedent in Jewish history of losing our balance. Go back to the story of the Maccabees, which is really a breakdown of the particularist universalist tension. Uh, the Maccabees are in a justifiable revolt against an attempt to impose radical universalism, but there's no place in their worldview for Hellenistic culture, which does come in 
very strongly into the people of Israel after the Maccabees revolt. In other words, we start to find our balance post-war. Right. Uh, the, the rise of Christianity, St. Paul is, I think, a kind of a classic example of that impatience in the Jewish soul with tribalism and wondering all the time, well, is this the moment that we've been waiting for to implement Isaiah's universal vision? Maybe this is it. Maybe it's Christianity. Maybe it's Marxism. And so you have these outbreaks of rejection of the narrow, of the tribal, and the search for the prophetic, the universal. And, and we seem to be in a similar time now, and again, going back, I think, to Stegu Boaz as that formative moment. And this we only see 70 years later. And so it's interesting what you were saying before about the right wanting a pre-modern tribalism and the left basically wanting a postmodern universalism. And what's so beautiful about Jewish peoplehood when it works as a big tent is that it brings together these opposing sensibilities and the compromise that the right is going to have to make if it truly wants a viable Jewish peoplehood and not just a right-wing community. Because the difference between community and a people is that a community is homogeneous and a people by definition is heterogeneous. And the right, right very often confuses peoplehood with what community looks like in diaspora. In diaspora, community is self-selected. I can join my synagogue and everyone in the synagogue can vote like me and the rabbi can be a reflection of my political commitment. But when you're functioning in a people, you have to deal with the radical diversity. You have to deal with groups whom you can't stand. That's peoplehood. And if the left sees itself as having any share in Jewish identity, it is going to have to realize that the Jewish peoplehood is a precious tool for advancing us toward a more universal consciousness. But you can only do that by bringing along your political opponents within the framework of people. You can only make a universal contribution through your particularity. That's you, exactly yeah, that. yeah. And that's what the left needs to understand, that yeah. universalism without particularism is not anchored in anything. It's like that beautiful book from John Loeffler, it says, Rooted Cosmopolitans. For me, one of the transformative realizations that moved me out of the right was listening to some of the leaders on the right who spoke endlessly about Ahavat Yisrael, love of the Jewish people. And then what I began to realize was that what they meant was love of Jews who were like them. Their Ahavat Yisrael didn't extend to Jews who disagreed with them. Yeah. And what brought me to the center was this sense that this is the ground where we can really try to create a hard but authentic love of the Jewish people. And interestingly enough, all these notions of living with complexity, living in a world that is not black and white, is what modern democracy is all about, right? In other words, for democracy to actually exist, you need to accept that your political party, your camp, is not going to get all that it wants. It's going to be a negotiation and it's going to be a world of gray. And as Adam Michnik said, gray is beautiful, right? And, <laughs> and, uh, and when you realize that, you look at the political process in a very different way. The political doctrines that didn't accept this and look for a utopian future in which it was going to be perfect. In other words, democracy embraces imperfection and Judaism always embraces imperfection. And yes, that's why the Talmud... Yes. And you know, Jews of all people coming out of the 20th century deeply fear 
passionate politics. When politics becomes messianic, when it becomes a kind of substitute for religion, I think what we're seeing happening now, it becomes very dangerous for the Jewish people. Right. Because as Stalin said, when you're doing a messianic utopia, what is a few million deaths? You know, just statistics. You're creating the perfect world. So, you know, you would sacrifice anything to create the perfect world. Now, if you accept that the world is not going to be perfect until Akadosh Baruch who wants it and sends a true Mashiach, if you accept that, so then the stakes are much lower and therefore the sacrifices and the damage and the violence you're willing to use are much less. It is as if the Jewish people need another covenant that says, now it's going to get all they want. It's going to be... Yes. <laughs> It's going to be great. You know what? To pick up on Michnik for a moment, I want my politics to be boring and I want my religion to be stimulated. And what I see all too often in Jewish life is the exact reverse. Right. And we right. confuse the place of intensity where it should be. It should belong in religion. And religion is the place where we bring our longing for the world as it should be. Politics is dealing with the world as it is and trying to nudge it a little bit further along right. uh, toward becoming a bit less brutal, a little more humane. Yeah, and um, interesting when you talk about the passionate politics, that is sometimes it's very irrational when you think about it, right? Isn't there also in the Jewish people a substitute for meaningful spiritual engagement? Let me rephrase that. You have Jews in North America that if you look at their lives, you wouldn't know that they care anything about being Jewish. They live perfectly assimilated lives. They don't have any level of Jewish observance. Now they don't go to synagogue. They don't speak any Jewish language. They don't speak Hebrew. They don't speak Yiddish. And yet they're very extreme in their nationalistic views. So I wonder whether those extreme political views are not a cheap substitute, as it were, for more meaningful engagement. Oh, absolutely. But I would include in that category a substitution of a rich Judaism with a single-minded commitment to Tikkun Olam. Yeah, yeah. Olam it's the same on the left, too. The end all. I think to some extent this was an understandable response to the political emergencies of the 19th and 20th centuries. We re-inhabited politics. Uh, by, by necessity, it became a, a politics became an existential need for the Jewish people. And the fact that we, we reclaimed a political identity after 1,800 years of absence from politics was an extraordinary achievement. But the challenge I think that we face in the 21st century is without losing the political gains, without losing the power that we've achieved, to begin the process of resacralizing. Jewish identity. We've displaced God in Judaism. As ludicrous as that sounds, where is God? And this has become so clear to me in my engagement with Muslims. I run a program at Hartman for young American Muslim leaders who come to study Judaism in Israel. And what I'm so struck by these people, first of all, how American and how modern and how worldly they are on the one hand, and how deeply religious they are the other. And at the same time, how perplexed they are as they begin to encounter modern Jewish reality and how we seem to be about everything but God. And I cherish all of these identities, these facets of, of Jewishness. I cherish peoplehood. I cherish tikkun olam. I cherish, of course, Israel and Zionism. I cherish halacha. I cherish Torah study. But all of these facets of Jewish identity 
are actually avoiding in one way God. And that's, yeah. it's as true for parts of the Orthodox community as, as strange as that may sound, as it is for the liberal community. I think it's so true. And that's something that worries me a lot is even if you believe or don't believe, the idea of speaking about God in the Jewish discourse is critical. I mean, me personally, and maybe that's my ignorance, but I don't think there's any meaningful theologian in the Jewish people in the last 50 years. I mean, people tell me, well, Arthur Green, well, which is a more of a neo-Hasidic thinker. It's not an original theology there. The world is undergoing, you know, humongous changes. The notion of human identity is undergoing changes. And we're not thinking about the spiritual dimensions of it. We're not creating a theology for the 21st century. We seem not even to care about creating a theology and talking about God in new ways. Do you think that this moment, this corona moment, might be a turning point for Judaism? I was going to ask you the same. By the way, for <laughs> our listeners out there, we're recording this during the corona isolation. That's why you see that the line is not great, but it's, you know, we're all on Zoom. And we resisted doing it just about corona because it's our little act of resistance. <laughs> but it is true that I was going to ask you if you think that corona is going to change a little bit how we define peoplehood. Like it is as if, well, we saw the dark underbelly of globalization. You know, somebody eats an uncooked bat in Wuhan and people get sick in Iceland, you know, or in New York for that matter. Is that going to threaten the globalization thing? I think my personal view is that the gen is out of the bottle. I mean, I don't think rather the opposite. What this is going to show is that the solutions to today's problem have to be global. But you're asking in theological terms whether a shower of humility, as it were, for the mm. human race of sort of encountering that, you know, you can think that you're all empowered, but yet a tiny little creature, which is just a single strain of RNA, can bring the world down. It may confront humans with their own fallibility and their own... We're having a kind of a global Sinai moment of experiencing our mortality. Every human being on the planet today is walking around through the day thinking the same thing exactly what you just said, how insignificant I am, all of these plans that I had, realizing that any of us could just go at any moment. And I want to go back to something you said earlier, though, about globalization piece. And I think it's, I think it's very much related to this potential new consciousness. And that is that the experience of corona is simultaneously reinforcing our oneness and reinforcing our separatism. You know, I was walking uh, on the street the other day and I see somebody approaching me and I think, oh no, a human. <laughs> I step out of the way and let this dangerous creature pass, not to be in that human's orbit. And what's true for each of us individually and how we are separating ourselves from each other is true for how nations are coping. We're shutting our borders. The first thing Israel did was shut our borders. And that turned out to actually be the right direction. And look at what's happening in Europe. Countries are shutting their borders against each other. And so in one sense, I think we're going to come out of this experience with a heightened appreciation of the national, the tribal, the collective. On the other hand, what we've just been saying about mass human experience, this may be the most global human experience in history. 
because of communications. We are all acutely aware of the corona numbers. The numbers are going up in Italy, they're going down in China. We've all become globally minded at the same time. So this is the paradox that we're living in. It's quite fascinating. And it's interesting if you think about the Black Death in the 14th century, two opposite things came out of it. I'm stretching a little bit the metaphor, but After that, you have the Renaissance, which was deeply humanist. It was deeply about the nature of the human. And on the other hand, it starts the emergence of a national identity in the Renaissance, right? You have all these Italian republics that become very strong and France starts to become a country for the first time. And, you know, but on the other hand, you have works of art and works of the spirit that are deeply about the human, about the human experience. So what does this moment mean for us, for the Jewish people? What can we bring into this moment? I think that it's an interesting question. I think that on the one hand, we can bring a message of hope to start with. I mean, Jews don't believe in Armageddon. I mean, the book of Revelations as in a, just a global hecatomb, as, you know, destroying humanity. That's not in our DNA. And I think the world needs to hear that now. We have historical challenges, but we don't buy into this notion of, you know, our day of judgment between inverted commas is not the Christian day of judgment. I mean, there are traditions. Or the Muslim, for example. Or the Muslim. Our view of, of these kind of tragedies is more subdued in a way. It's more practical. It's more humane in a way. I hope we're right. There's, sorry? <laughs> I hope we're right. Yeah, I hope we're right. <laughs> no, but there's, there's a quiet confidence in a benevolent God. And they're bringing God again here. And if you don't believe in God, that's fine. There's a benevolent view of history that history has ups and downs, but it goes towards a good place. As Levinas said, le temps va quelque part. Time goes towards something good. So I think that there's something very powerful about this. We have a big challenge as the human race, but we also have either a benevolent God or a benevolent concept of history that believes in our own ability to overcome this. I think the Jews need to use this in a way, in many ways, from the practical, like we're discovering new forms of community now. And maybe, you know what, wars and epidemics are greater accelerators of change. And among that change, there could be good change there too. Like I was thinking the other day, universities in the US are just toying with the idea of distance learning for decades. And all of a sudden, all the universities in the country are doing this massive pilot test of teaching all their courses online. That's a brutal acceleration of change. So I'm wondering, is there other similar accelerations of change in the Jewish community? From the very practical level, how we organize communities, the recession is going to bring a realignment of community priorities and of community organizations. That's going to be important. I think that on the spiritual level, I think that epidemics, especially this one, that is not related to poverty or, or to social conditions, are great equalizers. And I was thinking the other day, how petty, how insignificant some of these fights that we were discussing before, our internal political fights, look now. And part of me thinks, I wish we can hold on to this feeling, to our shared humanity and our shared destiny, and realize that many of our debates and fights are really petty and not really that significant. What do you think? First of all, how do you think what we as a people can learn and what we can teach the world about this moment? So uh, in terms of what we can learn, it's hard to see any shock to the Jewish system that was greater than what we went through in the mid-20th century. And maybe this moment will be a reminder to us of what it is that we've already survived. And not just survived, but 
the greatness of the mid-20th century Jewish experience was that we managed to, in a sense, reverse apocalypse into renewal and even a kind of redemption. We went from the lowest point in our history to one of the peak points in a single generation. And this is a story that when we think about what it is that we need to tell the world, we have a story of extraordinary success, of overcoming the absolute worst that any people could experience. And one of the ways that in which we did it was through a leap of imagination. This is what I, I love about Zionism, is that Zionism on the one hand was a very practical, no-nonsense solution to existential threat, but Zionism was also a secular adaptation of the most fantastic, literally fantastic in terms of fantasy, most fantastic Jewish idea that this powerless, dispersed people would one day actually reclaim its lost homeland. It's a fairy tale. Zionism right. is, a, is a fairy tale. And the Jewish people became Zionized in 1945 because we realized that the Holocaust was itself a kind of fairy tale. The Holocaust was also an event that couldn't happen. It wasn't, it right. wasn't rational. It was meta-historical. And what we needed to respond to that meta-historical apocalyptic imagination was activating the Jewish redemptive imagination. That's what Zionism achieved. And we live now in the aftermath of that extraordinary blessing, which was defeating the apocalyptic imagination with the redemptive imagination. Now, of course, we're the generation after, and we know what redemption looks like in the real world. We know the, all of the problems we're dealing with. But there's something there that I think we need, first of all, to own for ourselves. We need to understand what that achievement was in the, in the mid-20th century. What did we actually do as a people? How did we overcome the Holocaust? And uh, this is actually what I'm writing about now. I'm, I'm working on a book about 1945 onward. And the books that are sitting on my desk are all about the DP camp. That's a period that we, we've forgotten. We've somehow leaped over that. Something right. extraordinary happened in the DP camps, which was exactly that transition. So it's a fascinating way of looking at it. Something meta-historical demands another thing meta-historical, and the positive has to be as powerful as the negative. That my fear is that Zionism existed before 1945. It had been, the basis had been set. It's true there was a minority movement until 1945, and sometimes a frowned upon movement until 1945, but it existed. Now, my fear is that I'm not sure that we have that imagination today. If I look at, okay, what's our big dream, our, call it, redemptive imaginative project that can balance the apocalyptic project? I'm not sure we have it because we haven't invested that much in creating those ideologies, in creating those ideas. But maybe we don't see it and they are there, but it concerns me. Well, maybe the big idea internally within the Jewish people is the Jewish people. And we need to make that explicit. And we need to think about what are the, not just the benefits of peoplehood, but what, what is the spiritual significance of peoplehood? And here I would say that one of the paradoxes I'm very aware of as a religious Jew for whom peoplehood is my primary commitment, even before the religion, 
right. is that tension of, in my own personal life, trying to develop a relationship with God is the center point. But what transcends that commitment is the peoplehood project. And if there is any tension between, say, halakha and peoplehood, and there is, I side with peoplehood. But the question that I ask myself is why? How do I justify that on religious grounds? That's part of the work that we need to do. It's right. part of the pushback that we need to do, say, for example, to the Haredi world, which basically rejects the primacy of peoplehood. And I would go even farther and say that for the Haredi world, peoplehood is a very weak religious category. And so right. what is it about peoplehood that is essential for the Jewish religious commitment? And what is it about peoplehood that right and left in political secular terms need to own for their own worldview? Yeah, I'm actually thinking, what is the metaphysical value, the religious value of peoplehood? It's peoplehood, yes. a conduit for sanctity in and of itself. Yes. I don't know if there's a theology of that, but there should be a theology of peoplehood. Like how yes. actually there's no, like God resides in the people. It does not reside in an isolated individual or in an isolated sect. So the, people, so the Kuzari, yeah. you know, Yehuda Levi's Kuzari took that idea and turned it into a philosophical proof in his language for the truth of Judaism. But there's something in the Kuzari's approach that we need to adapt for our time. Right. which is right. what is it about Sinai and about a revelation to an entire people which tells us something essential about Judaism and our place in the world. But then, I mean, I don't know if you're opening here a kind of worms that we won't have time to analyze, but we both agree that peoplehood in and of itself is something holy, something important, is something very complex and very diverse, and it's not homogeneous. Now, what are the limits to that? heterogeneity, because that's the question you're going to say, right? Like you mentioned Paul before. Well, Paul, over time, not, not at the beginning, but over time, became outside the Jewish people, correct? Yes. And and so did the Karaites. So I'm totally with you on the heterogeneity of it, but then what are the limits of that heterogeneity? So when I was growing up in America of the 70s, the big question was Jews for Jesus. Right. And the entire Jewish community, the whole spectrum, instinctively came to a consensus that excluded Jews for Jesus from the Jewish people. That was the only group that was categorically removed. In our time, we're struggling with the question of organized Jewish anti-Zionism, the rebirth of organized Jewish anti-Zionism. And one of the distinctions that I'm struggling with is between Satmar and the Turekarta. Both of them share the same anti-Zionist theology. Satmar will demonstrate against Israel, but only on its own. Naturi Karta takes the step of making common cause with Hezbollah, with Iran. And as soon as you do that, it seems to me you have now excluded yourself from Beit Israel. I don't know how to apply that in a, let's say, to the secular expressions of Jewish anti-Zionism, but I think there's something here that we need to think about more deeply. A community is defined in two ways, by who it includes, but also, as you indicate, by who it excludes. And yeah. that's true for any community. No community yeah. is, is entirely all-embracing. Right. And it's problematic because what Neture Carta does, they do that 
in the name of Judaism. That's the conundrum. The same way somebody at Jewish Voices for Peace will say, in a certain way, they meet the definition that you just said. They, you know, they ally themselves with... I think, I think they do. I think so. unsavory characters, but they will claim, well, we want to save the soul of Judaism from the whatever they phrase it, the corrupting occupation and what have you. Now, on the right, you're going to have people that are going to ally themselves with somebody like Viktor Orban, who's an anti-Semite, and he's been allied to enemies of the Jewish people in Hungary and, and others. But they're going to say, we're doing it to benefit Israel. So it gets more complicated than simply say, you're allied with, with this or that. And people will tell you, well, in Second World War, we did talk to Eichmann about saving Jews, didn't we? You know, I think one of the big discussions that our community is going to have is how to define those boundaries. And I think that the smell test that you described could actually be important. Like sometimes maybe we can't legislate it. Maybe something like when you actively ally yourself with enemies of, of Jews, that sets you out. Or when there is a very broad consensus from left to right that you just shouldn't belong, like Jews for Jesus. It's interesting because the Jews also there have a message to tell the world, right? Because every nation, I think, is in the midst of the same definition of who is inside and who is outside. Like this whole notion in the United States of who's an American, it's, right. it's also a question, right? And the two visions of what the American people is. Now, it's kind of ridiculous to talk about an American people as such, but what is the American people, right? We're not alone in these questions. What's so dangerous about our Jewish hard right and hard left is that their notion of who belongs and who needs to be excluded is so not normative. Their idea of who's in is so narrow that they would destroy the Jewish people. Now, we need to finish because you need to go. <laughs> but um, I have a question for you, Andres. Yes. Could you tell me something about your background? I know you're from Argentina, right? I'm from Argentina. I'm, um, what is your, your Jewish background? Oh, it's very mixed. I grew up in a completely secular Zionist household, you know, socially Zionist. I went to the Bialik school. We were like very, very secular, but very, very Jewish. I learned Hebrew together with Spanish. It's a native language for me. But I hadn't set foot in a synagogue until my own bar mitzvah. Then I became very active in the conservative movement in Latin America because of Rabbi Marshall Meyer. You know the sure. story. Marshall was you know, founder of the conservative movement in Argentina and a big advocate for human rights. And so for me, Judaism is sort of intrinsically linked to human rights and to sort of these kind of values, because that's how I entered Judaism. And I'm the living proof that engaging with those issues of the Olam and stuff like that actually can get you to a meaningful Jewish engagement. Now, that's maybe, a very, a very important insight. Yeah, maybe, right maybe it was there. there. Right. Maybe, though, it was because the notion of peoplehood had been cemented before in my Zionist education, right? Like it was a given already that I had that notion of right. the Jewish people, that concept of Jewish history. History. And then I added that religious dimension, but everything sort of came together beautifully. It was Zionism that I interpreted as a deeply liberal and democratic movement. That was a nice idea. Yeah, that was a nice idea. <laughs> but, but if you read Herzl, even Jabotinsky, his idea of Zionism, it's very democratic, it's very liberal. Especially Jabotinsky. Especially Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky was, moreover, Jabotinsky felt that Israel would be the bulwark of the democratic West against the barbaric East, uh, that's 19th century parlance, right? But right. 
but he thought of that. So I had that. And then mm-hmm. came the normative aspect of practice and ritual that when I got that from the conservative movement, I realized how much I was missing it. The ritual, the texture of Jewish practice, which is very important. So I started to be a rabbi in a conservative seminary. I also studied business at the same time. I went to Israel did to you study. Did your rabbinic studies? I did finish them, but I didn't graduate. I had sort of a, I don't call it a crisis of faith, but a, a whole crisis with the whole idea of being and working as a rabbi. I didn't see myself doing that. And it's true that I discovered the passion of ritual, but I'm still not observant to the level I needed to be if I wanted to be a rabbi and a model for others. So I took instead a Jewish studies degree and I went to Israel to study at the, at the Melton Center in Hebrew U. Then I went back, studied a career in the corporate world. I took a break from Jewish stuff. Oh, wow. And then I moved to Europe to work for the JDC. That was very interesting because it was the expression of peoplehood, right? Like the sort of Zionistic expression of peoplehood, the spiritual connection to Judaism, but then what the JDC gave me was this idea of Jewish solidarity across borders. Like here's a Jew from Argentina working for an American Jewish organization, helping Jews in Russia. That was encapsulated this notion of peoplehood that we were talking about. And I found that extremely beautiful. Then I moved to Canada. I was running the Jewish Federation in Montreal and then JFN. I realize that these conversations that we're having are not the usual that you have with communal leaders, but I think it's very important to bring that to the community. Just that one last question, something that we should be very hopeful about. The Jewish people's infinite capacity to turn tragedy into renewal in a way that's our trademark. I look at the American Jewish community and the extraordinary energy and resources and goodwill that has really defined the post-Holocaust Jewish life in America. It seems to me that in recent years, the Jewish community has become adrift. And there's a deepening sense of confusion from some quarters, fatalism. And my hope is that the Jewish genius of turning disaster into renewal might capitalize on this moment and regalvanize really the extraordinary potential of American Jewry. As positive as I am about Israel and its place in the Jewish future, I feel in my better moments, I feel the same about American Jewry. And the emergence of these two experiments at more or less the same time, the self-confident American Jewry that we know since the Holocaust, along with the state of Israel, has transformed Jewish life in ways that we must not take for granted. My hope is that we will use this moment to, first of all, appreciate what we've achieved and build on that and regain something of the focus that we've begun to use. Amazing. Thank you very, very much, Yossi. And we should continue this. We should do this more often. I would love to. Okay. Let's do it in New York or Jerusalem when we... When Corona allows it. Yala, take care. Thank you so much. Truly a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to Yossi Klein-Halevi for taking the time to speak with me. You can find his books at all major booksellers and learn more about him at yossikleinhalevi.com. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us, don't hesitate to write to us at communications at jfunders.org. 
keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at your own risk at at Spokoini. I leave you with a quote from Revetzing Dina Weinberg. There are no problems, only opportunities for growth. So keep growing, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.